Hello and welcome aboard the Gallant Says Podcast, available on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud. I am Paul Gallant. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on any of those various applications and also leave a rating, maybe even a little review like these two, which aren't good. If you get a roast, by the way, in, in the midst of the reviews, I will read it. I will react to it. VLove87, one star, bum. I'm here to tank this bum's ratings. Hasayao Kvijiafulfke gave me one star as well. Not worth your time, bland content. Nothing about this podcast is worth your time. I'm very curious as to where geographically those two reviews came from. Given that they were written on Wednesday I think I know where. I'll tell you in just a second. Let's go. I was just kind of curious what Paul gets to see. You are definitely living in the hindsight world today, Paul. You gotta grow up, motherfucker. You kidding me? Paul, what the hell is wrong with you? When you break up with somebody, what do you do? Do you maybe go through your social media feed and remove every single picture that you had with said person? Do you block the person on all of those social media feeds and maybe even their phone number too? Or do you do something really toxic? Like, I don't know, put their number out on the internet, release revenge porn. I hope you don't do that because that is a sign of a psychopath. Generally, you want to turn the page, right? You want to leave your past behind. You would prefer to stay away from a one-night stand, hookup kind of scenario where you go back to said person. That is not something that is taking place with the Tennessee Titans this week. We talked about them on last Friday's podcast. I've brought this up before. I hate Tennessee Titan fans. Hate them. This stems back all the way to when I broke a story about how Jake Locker was being benched for Zach Medenberger. And I'd never reported before. I got this information from a pretty reliable source, but not being a journalist and wanting to actually preserve the sanctity of journalism, I tweeted afterwards, I got to double check. I did double check, but I didn't hear back from anybody. Because I wrote that I had double-checked doing my job, a bunch of people from Tennessee decided to get on the attack and assaulted me, like, for, I would say, 12 to 14 hours. But then, all of a sudden, Ken Wisenhunt, then the head coach of the Tennessee Titans, announced that Zach Menberger was going to be the starter over Jake Locker. None of these people apologized. They all just moved on. Titans fans also got mad at me when I told them, well ahead of everybody, that Marcus Mariota wasn't a good quarterback. Because Mariota was a quarterback who was too scared to throw the football downfield. So they came after me for that too. I did quarterback rankings. I think I had Mariota like 22nd or something like that. And they got, they lost their minds. In their defense, I mean, it's a state that doesn't know anything about football. They still think that the Tennessee Volunteers are going to return to glory. And they thought Mariota was good. I'm sure they thought Jake Locker was good. It's fine. I mean, I get it. You, you know, you're, you're football peasants. Um, this is uh, new to you having an NFL team, and you're still struggling to learn that it's not the SEC, that Peyton Manning is not someone who's going to walk from the Volunteers over to the Titans. And I'm sure that you're, you know, pretty proud of the Super Bowl that you came up a yard short in and also your AFC runner-up that you had a couple of seasons ago. Good job. 
Good effort. You are pores by NFL standards, and I can say this because I'm a Patriots fan. Anyway, let's get back to the Tennessee Titans. They sprayed us on social media with a bunch of Oilers things for Oilers Tribute Week logos and things, and I, I, I got irate. Um, my Titans fan buddy, Mike Lefko, who worked with me at 710, made me aware of it because he knows exactly how to trigger me. <laughs> so I retweeted this social media barrage saying, you are thieves, piss off, and give Houston back its football history. For those who don't know, the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee, were the Oilers in Tennessee for a couple of seasons before when they got their new stadium after playing in, I believe, Memphis and in a couple of other stadiums, maybe maybe at the Vanderbilt Stadium too. They got their new stadium, they rebranded. I continued the thread. The balls on these people believing anyone in Tennessee actually respects the Houston Oilers history. These throwbacks don't belong to you. And then I had this line from Indiana Jones that belongs in a museum. I followed up the thread saying, I'm legitimately angry about this. Titans fans, once again, came on the war path and attacked me. And I did to them what I just did to them just a couple of moments ago, though with a Twitter chain. And I also tweeted pictures of Kevin Dyson coming up a yard short, Jake Locker holding a number one overall or first round draft pick jersey in front of him, Marcus Mariota doing the same thing. When a team leaves town, I am of the belief that it should leave the history of said team to that city. This doesn't always happen. And I can understand the argument, well, it's that person's property. But is it? Can you really take away the memories of a fan base? You can't. So why should you take away everything else that had once played in the city if you're going to move the team to another city and change the name? What's the point? What's the purpose? What do you gain? This has happened a couple of times over the last 20, 30 years or so. 40 years, actually. I think this is the gold standard for how it should be done. Remember the Charlotte Bobcats who came into existence in 2004. This was after the Charlotte Hornets in 2002 moved to New Orleans. They were the New Orleans Hornets there. But after a couple of years in 2014, the Bobcats and Hornets made a deal. The Bobcats acquired the history of the Hornets and the record of the Hornets from 1988 when they were founded to 2002 and they got everything back and now they're the Charlotte Hornets again the New Orleans team changed its name to the New Orleans Pelicans and are officially recognized as an expansion team that started in 2002 both teams have their history this does not happen often but this is how I think it should be done win-win for everybody right New Orleans gets a team name that makes more sense the Pelicans and the Hornets get their old team back Sometimes it involves a fight. When Clay Bennett moved the Seattle Sonics, <laughs> Clay Bennett, to Oklahoma City, a settlement was reached where the Sonics' names and colors could not be used by the team in OKC, but could be taken by a future team in Seattle. OKC would retain the history, but it could be shared with any future team in Seattle. We're still waiting here in Seattle, where I currently live, and 
I hope that eventually we will see the Sonics back and that they will get their history back. Like the title they won in, what was it, 1975, 1976? Off the top of my head, I don't know. I need to watch that Sonic Skate documentary, by the way. I have the DVD. I haven't quite seen it yet, but I know based off of Danny, my co-host on uh, Danny and Galat uh, back in the day, I know through him that <laughs> he hates the Oklahoma City Thunder. But I give the Oklahoma City Thunder credit. They have never tried to put on the clothes of the dead ex-wife that they are replacing. They never did that. Another example of a team moving, but the history staying in the town where the history took place, which to me is common sense. When Art Modell moved the Cleveland Browns to Baltimore after 1995, Cleveland Browns season ticket holders and Cleveland, the city, took action. So the NFL brokered a compromise where Brown's history, records, and intellectual property would remain in Cleveland. Art Modell, who was the owner of the Cleveland Browns, actually wanted to keep everything intact. He wanted the Baltimore Browns to be the team name. But, get this, Baltimore fans, I think a little more empathetic, a little more sensitive, were uneasy with the prospect of taking Cleveland's football history. Why? Because the Indianapolis Colts were stolen away from Baltimore. So let's go to that situation because that situation got really messy. And this isn't quite as bad. Excuse me. This is way worse than the now Titans skipping town from Houston. This is in fact, in my opinion, the worst example of a team skipping town. And I would include that over Seattle and losing the Sonics. The Colts left Baltimore in 1984, but they did this despite the city of Baltimore actually passing legislation that gave Baltimore the right to seize ownership of the Colts by eminent domain when they were trying to leave. That is ridiculous, right? But that shows a city that was really committed to keeping the Baltimore Colts, the team that, of course, was quarterbacked by Johnny Unitas back in the day. Two days later, though, the Colts snuck out in Mayflower trucks at 10 p.m. This was before the bill was officially passed and signed by Maryland's governor. So the trucks took different routes out of Baltimore to Indianapolis so that the Maryland State Police couldn't delay them all until after the eminent domain law was signed. Can you imagine that? Police cruisers chasing down a truck that is moving a football team from one city to another. And by the way, a very skeezy tactic by Robert Ursay, but I get it. It's, it's a team he owned, but it's not something that should be surprising, right? Because I mean, like father, like son, Jim Ursay is not exactly the most stand-up individual. How did former Colts feel about the move? Well, let's go to Johnny Unitas, quarterback of those Baltimore Colts, who was asked about it before the 1996 AFC Championship game against the Steelers. About the Colts, maybe getting to a Super Bowl. Unitas. It doesn't belong there. Those things should be left in Baltimore. And when we get another team, the great things that Lenny Moore, Raymond Berry, Gino Marchetti, and people like 
Arthur Donovan can all become a part of the Baltimore tradition again. The tradition is in Baltimore. There is no reason for any of us who played for Baltimore to be with Indianapolis. They have never invited me there with a personal invitation, but if they had, I would have said, thank you, but no thanks. The Colts' name belongs in Baltimore, just like the Rams' name belongs in Los Angeles. The Rams, of course, had moved to St. Louis then, now back in Los Angeles. If the commissioner had any power whatsoever, he would petition the owners to vote in that fashion. That's Johnny Unitas in 1996, a former player. And I can understand why Johnny Unitas would feel that way. Johnny Unitas wants to be remembered in Baltimore, and he wants the Colts to be a part of Baltimore forever because they were a part of Baltimore. What's interesting is a couple of years back, actually, I think this was last year, the Colts did something similar to what the Titans are doing right now. They went out on um, social media and they tweeted out pictures of the old Baltimore Colts uniforms that has horseshoes, I think, on the back of the helmet as opposed to on on the side. And I think people in Baltimore were rightfully ticked off about it. You are essentially flexing in the clothing of a dead spouse. Like that's, that's what I compare it to. So I was, I think, very justified in taking a look at the Tennessee Titans who are no longer the Tennessee Oilers having Oilers Remembrance Week because I don't understand the point of it. No one in Tennessee, no one in Nashville cares about the Houston Oilers. Just like nobody in Oklahoma City cares about the Seattle Supersonics. They don't care about the history. They don't care about the legacy. They're just happy that they have a team. And I don't blame them for that. I don't. But why the hell are you giving us the middle finger? If you're living in Houston, that's what you feel like you're getting right now. A giant fuck you. And that's bullshit to me. It's a poor way of doing things. Someone tagged me on Instagram about this specific question. He said, who owned the Oilers and who owns the Titans? I assume if you move houses, you just leave your clothes and everything you own there for the next people. No, I just gave you a couple of actual comparisons of sports teams leaving town, but leaving the history in the town that they left. He was pointing, this person who commented on Instagram to me, he's a Titans fan, I believe, on a post where Warren Moon was asked where the Oilers' history belongs with a leading question. The bag will get you to say a lot before I read what Warren Moon had to say. Money can get somebody who, I don't know, is in really good shape to do an advertisement for laser fat removal, for example. I don't know who anyone who would, you know, do something like that, but... If you get paid, you will do things that you probably, if you were not being paid for it, if you were left entirely to your moral compass, that you would not. That's what money does. It corrupts. So someone asked Warren Moon a leading question where the Oilers belong right now. Moon, quote, I have to say here, Nashville, Tennessee, that's where our legacy went. Pause. And think about that pause. That's where our legacy went. I don't think legacy can leave. I don't think legacy can move. Doesn't matter where you are, we're all still connected. I'm just glad that Amy Adams Strunk, the now owner and principal of the Titans, reached out to all the former Oiler players and gave them a place that they can call home now. Because for a long time, especially guys who only played for the Oilers, they really didn't have a place where they could call home, a place where they could come back for an alumni weekend, end quote. So 
he's, he makes some points there that I, I actually agree with in that, look, the, the Oilers haven't really had anywhere to go for a while, and it is cool to an extent that Tennessee is recognizing them, but it's Amy Adams strong welcoming them back. The people of Tennessee, they don't give a shit. <laughs> They're just glad that they have these awesome throwback uniforms to wear. Uh, the Titans, Jim Wyatt, put out a shill piece for their team website. I believe he was one of the people who came after me when I broke that story. Former Houston Oilers thankful to be embraced as Titans in Tennessee. Here in Houston, said Elfin Bethea, the Oilers, we are the forgotten ones, Elfin Bethea, a former Oiler great. We kind of feel like outcasts here, to be honest. We are not tied to the team here, even though this is where we were the building stones and the foundation. So... There's a feeling of being abandoned. And we'll get to more of that in a moment. I can understand that. But that is not the case with the fans in Houston. Robert Brazil, Dr. Doom, someone who I've interviewed a couple of times, who I think is a wonderful person, had this to say, we all need a place to call home. When you play for a franchise and then all of a sudden the franchise leaves that city and goes away, it is hard. We put our heart and soul into something. And when you get to be an old man and you're trying to explain this to your kids, I played football, but I can't take you to the Astrodome to see a game. And the Oilers are not the Oilers anymore. You want to be a part of something. Amy has made us feel like we are a part of something again. Really, again, I, I want to give Amy Adams strong credit for this because these guys do deserve to be remembered. But what you heard from Elvin Bethea, what you heard from Dr. Doom, Robert Brazil there, I can assure you, this is a minority opinion, a minority opinion that may or may not be affected by the bag, and that privately many of those players, if you were to tell, ask them where you want to be remembered, they would say Houston. Brazil himself, when I was working at Sports Radio 610, we did a roast of him, and a bunch of old Oiler fans came in, and I don't think anyone knew what the hell the idea of a roast was. I think this was uh, a brand of comedy that was <laughs> past their primes, if you will. So it turned into essentially a love you blue fest. Just a remembrance for those Houston Oiler teams and how fun they were back in the late 70s and the early 80s. And... It shows you that there's a lot of people in town that want that history to still be a part of the team, or at least the town. Bruce Matthews is the only person that's in the Hall of Fame that played for both the Houston Oilers and the Tennessee Oilers and the Tennessee Titans. And here's what he had to say about the Oilers' history not being in Houston. I still live in Houston, so I know how ingrained the Oilers were in the fabric of Houston. To this day, people will share what made the memories of the team spent with Parents, dad specifically, special. It's really hard, and I feel for those fans. Whoever the Adams, whoever they are that own the Titans, they ought to give the Oilers' history back to the Texans. It's just sitting up there in Nashville where I think the Texans could really use it. There are just people up there who don't know anything, nor do they care about the Oilers' history, and I can't blame them, but the people down here, I think, would appreciate it. I agree 100%. Here's what Amy Adams Strunk has had to say about it, though, when asked about it. Uh, the remembrance of the Oilers. The guys in Houston, no fault of their own, kind of got left out. They kind of became NFL orphans, and it always bothered me, Strunk said. And by the way, it definitely would not have bothered her father, Bud Adams. Bud Adams was not that kind of a guy. <laughs> and I know a lot of people in Houston have differing opinions on him, but most of them are negative. And it became important for me to include them and have a reunion and start bridging whatever happened in the past to get them feeling like they are part of our family, end quote. And to her credit, she is honoring them. 
Her dad, again, definitely would not have. But who in Tennessee is? They are looting the dead. I suppose you can loot the dead if you want. Do you feel good about it? Taking a wedding ring off of someone's corpse? I would hope no. She was also asked about this a couple of years ago about the Titans and their existence and the Oilers and its history in Houston and if the Texans should be allowed to wear those throwbacks. Very interesting, except the Oilers don't have anything to do with the Texans. So that's a hard no. And it's pointed, right? And there's a little animosity behind it. And and I get the animosity. I don't blame her for being pissed at a city that's villainized her father. How would you feel if an entire city thought your father was a piece of shit? Even if said villainization is legit, how would you feel about that? I wouldn't feel great about it. But there's something there that it doesn't feel right with me because they, with this Oilers session that they're doing this week of celebrating a team that has not really played in that city ever. I mean, I know they played there for two years, but that doesn't count. Steve McNair and Eddie George, those are, those are Titans. They are not Oilers, even though they played for the Oilers. There's a part of me that, that thinks that they are just giving Houston a fuck you here. And it's more about giving the fuck you than it's about honoring these players because the fans, again, they don't care. That's what bothers me the most about this. But I, I do think Houston has a part to play in why the history has left town. You know, we mentioned above how uh, the city of Seattle and the city of Cleveland basically sued to keep the history of the Sonics and the Browns in town. No one in Houston did that. No one filed suit to keep the record or the logo. They basically said, all right, fuck off. When Bud Adams, for the second time in a decade, asked for more money to pay for a new stadium. First 10 years before, he wanted... He wanted things, renovations in the Astrodome, which by its end was a dump. And, you know, in its heyday, it was the eighth wonder of the world. Afterwards, yeah. And I think right now it's overrun by cats, rats, and bats. And for some reason, even though people in Houston have voted to demolish it, they still haven't demolished it. Adams also demanded this money in the midst of a 2-14 and season for the Oilers. And it was a multi-sport arena, but... They were going to have the Rockets play in the stadium. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? And Les Alexander, then the owner of the Rockets, never talked with Bud Adams about it. So no one in Houston was going to pay taxes to get the new stadium to keep the team in town, which I understand. But when you don't even sue to keep the record or the logo of all these Houston players, when you assume that you're going to get football back, that's a failure on your part. That's a failure on the city's part. And here's the other problem, too. And this is, once again, another example of why the Texans are just so damn unlikable. They are too proud to ask for that history back. I don't think that Amy Adams Strunk would give it back if they asked, but the Texans do not want the Oilers to be remembered. I'm sure if they had it their way, they would pull a Tampa Bay Lightning and anybody who wore an Oilers uniform to um, NRG Stadium, they would tell them to remove it. They would come down to them in their seats and they would say, please take that off, which is a shame. I mean, the Oilers are more a part of Houston's culture and history than the Texans are. Nothing against the Texans. They just haven't done shit yet. And what they've done over the last two years is completely burn all goodwill that had slowly been built up for them since their inception in 2002. 
This would be something, even asking for it and getting a hard no, this would actually be something that would help get the Texans back to being, I don't know, somewhat liked in town. It's a start. It's more than anything that they have done of late. I mean, right now, even if the team has been scrappy in the first three games of the year, specifically more so when Tyrod Taylor was under center. And by the way, they look look good for the first six quarters of the season. Um, It's it's something that is, I think, really ugly to look at. The logo itself, too. There's a lot of things about the Texans that's just bad. Jack Easterby, the Deshaun Watson situation that nobody on Fox wants to touch with the 10-foot pole. And... I think that Houston football fans deserve to have the history of this team back in town. I know it's never going to get it back, but I want it. And I'm mad that the Titans are just saying, fuck you, Houston, by displaying this logo all over the place. It's not cool. They are rubbing our faces in it. So I will rub your faces, Titans fans, in this and ask a question. You wore those Oilers throwbacks once. You wore them in Foxborough. Remember what happened in that game? You lost 59 to nothing. If that's not karmic justice, I don't know what is. So I have watched a little Houston Texans football for the first time basically since 2019. And I got to say, they're better than I expected. I think they're better than everyone expected. They have a pulse. They are scrappy. They have some players. A lot of them are hurt right now, but I think there's some upside with Nico Collins, your rookie wide receiver out of Michigan. Justin Reed had an awesome game against the Cleveland Browns. It's a shame that he tore the ulnar collateral ligament in his thumb, but he forced a fumble. He had an interception in that game. Christian Kirksey, a linebacker who they acquired, I think he's been really good. The running back group at times flashes. The problem is their offensive line sucks. Again, which, you know, you, you would think trading two first-round picks for Laramie Tunsil would <laughs> fix that, but you learned out the hard way that Bill O'Brien paying all that money for Laramie Tunsil, Laramie Tunsil, was not a great idea. Uh, and on Thursday, they lose 24-9 to the Panthers. But it was a game that they were hanging around in at least up to halftime. And look, this team is totally different with Davis Mills under center. There's no denying that. Davis Mills and his long neck. It's weird, right, that the Texans keep on having quarterbacks that look like giraffes. Brock Osweiler runs like one. Davis Mills is just a very long neck. He looks like one. Mills is better, though, by the way, than Brock, than Brock Osweiler. It was a very low bar to clear. But I actually think there are some things that are promising with him. I mean, he had a 65-yard throw. Was that against the Browns? Or was it against the Panthers? I forget. But in one of the last two games... He unleashed an absolute cannon of a, of a pass. It was inaccurate, but it was a hell of a throw. And I actually think even though he's got very limited mobility, he is capable of making plays. So I wonder what he'll look like with more seasoning. And I wonder too, if the Texans would actually go back to Tyrod Taylor when he's healthy. Because obviously, even though, you know, draft positioning wise, maybe that doesn't matter at this point in time. But I, I, I really wonder... What's going to happen next? There's something here with Mills. The problem is, like Tom Savage, he's a fucking statue. And I hate those in today's NFL. And if I were Nick Casario, the general manager of the Texans, I, I would have stayed away from a quarterback like that entirely. Even if he does have some skills. And he does. He does have, I think, some talent. 
So we'll see where that goes. But look, no one cares. And with good fucking reason. They have pissed away all reasons for goodwill. And you shouldn't have to watch the team. I will watch it. I will break things down that I find interesting. But we all know that this is a team that's going to be drafting. Um, have a draft pick at the very least. It's very early. You know what? I, I'm, I'm asking this question because the two teams that I've most recently covered, they, they haven't had first-round picks in a while. <laughs> Let's see. Texas draft picks 2022. Draft picks the Texans have in 2022. All right, they will have a first round pick next year. Let's go. Some of you guys are going to get mad at the comparison I'm about to make. What the fuck ever. The Seahawks are addicted to big plays. And you never stop being an addict, right? I'm not trying to trivialize that at all. They can't help themselves. Much like an addict can't help himself with a cigarette or with a beer or with drugs and going back down that horrible, sad cycle that so many people that deal with addiction do. The comparison in the sports side of things, though, is that the Seahawks are a football team that, no matter how hard they try, will ultimately see Russell Wilson fall back to trying to make big plays. I don't have a problem with him trying to make big plays. He's very good at it. But this season, the priority was that you're going to get the ball out quickly. You saw it all training camp. You saw it in practice. The Seahawks were trying to get the ball out quickly and to move with, with rhythm and with pace. And then in the second half against the Titans, they kept on going for passes deep down the field and they weren't working. I get it. You know, you, you, you all of a sudden, you can't make things happen the same way that you were in the first half or you have the long touchdown pass to Tyler Lockett and you have the long touchdown pass to Freddie Swain. But both of those plays came as a result of massive fuck-ups by Tennessee. I mean, they, they had no idea where Freddie Swain even was on that deep touchdown pay, play. And they got away from doing the things that this year they were saying that they were going to prioritize with Shane Waldron in charge. This offseason, Tyler Lockett had said about the Seahawks offense hitting a wall in the second half of the year. In the last eight games of the season, I think we did a great job adjusting. It just, we didn't really know what teams were going to do. We did a great job game planning, but they might have thrown out different things in the game and we had to adjust. And that's what we would do on the fly, and we did a great job at it. But I, I don't know about that. I felt like most of the adjustments when the Seahawks were going up against the cover two was Russell Wilson <laughs> trying in the middle of plays to turn them into playground football. And the problem was when these teams were dropping all these guys back in coverage, none of the big plays for DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett were available to them. Now, you see that game against the Indianapolis Colts. I mean, damn, they were efficient early on in that game. And you would hope that they can stick with that for the entirety of the year. But they had issues. So Tyler Lockett actually had some interesting comments about it this week. And I think he's been probably the best person to get the vibe of where the offense is on this team. Not Russell Wilson, who was just bullshit you with cliches and platitudes. Here's what Tyler Lockett said. Quote, I think something sometimes we get caught up in, like we had so many explosive plays. It's like once you start seeing explosive plays happening, you want to keep doing it. And so, I mean, eventually they ended up taking away those explosive plays and they wanted us to be able to play short. And that's something we'll love to do. That's something that we want to do. But when we start doing it, we got sidetracked by the penalties and that's what kind of hurt us in being able to keep the, you know, third and short, second and short, or second and five. And here's why I made the comparison to an addict. Yes, this is a totally different thing, but those are the kind of excuses that you hear from an addict when they slip up. And you do have to take some personal responsibility for it. I mean, you can say like, look, we were getting behind the ball. And we weren't able to get into third and short, second and short, second and five, and all those things. But those are excuses. You got away from it, and you didn't get back to it. Get back to it. You know, like, 
penalties as an excuse for getting away from the big plays, or excuse me, getting away from the normal offense and trying to go for the big plays, that, you know, that's not an excuse. Don't have penalties. That's the, that's the answer. Just like it's don't slip up. Don't put yourself in situations where you might slip up as an addict. So I hate to make that comparison. I don't really. That's the comparison I'm making. They're addicted to big plays. They've got to find a way to keep composed over the course of a whole game. I think they have it in them, but it's really going to be on Russell Wilson. Russ has to realize sometimes that it's okay to take the single. He did not realize that in the second half against Tennessee. For the second straight year, the Seahawks get the Minnesota Vikings with their back against the wall. Last year, Minnesota was 1-3 for that Sunday night football game against the Seahawks, which was a fucking crazy game, right? I mean, Seattle couldn't do anything in the first half. Continues that way in the second, but then they score 21 points in like five seconds. And then at the end of the game, they march down the field with Russell Wilson hitting DK Metcalf in the end zone for the game-winning score. Crazy game, terrible weather, but a very memorable one. Russell Wilson's 7-0 against these Minnesota Vikings who are 0-2 coming into their home opener against Seattle on Sunday. And I'm nervous for Seattle because this is a very good 0-2 Vikings team. Specifically because Kirk Cousins, yes, Kirk Cousins is playing great football. I just watched his game against the Arizona Cardinals. He is scrambling when needed to. He is making smart throws to the receivers that they have who are very good. It's not just Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. Now you got K.J. Osborne in the mix who had a long touchdown reception against Arizona. And I, I look at that receiver core and I think to myself some of the same things I think about when the Seahawks go up against teams like the Rams or like what happened against the Tennessee Titans this past game where there are these spots in the middle of that cover three, specifically in the seams, where they just... They just don't do so well. The linebackers just aren't there. So I think it's a matchup problem for them. And some things that you got to consider in this game. Minnesota's offensive line looks really, really good. And they were pushing a Cardinals front seven that gave Tennessee all the issues in the world and Derrick Henry all the issues in the world in week one. They were pushing them back a lot. And Dalvin Cook had a bunch of 10-yard-plus gains. Now, he's dealing with an ankle injury, and he's questionable, but he did say earlier in the week that he's going to be good to go for the game on Sunday. And he left, of course, the Seahawks game against the Vikings last year in the second half. I think it was the first play of the second half that he injured his groin. They were using him a lot in the first half. And while he wasn't getting a ton of yards, he was pushing the pile, that's for sure. And he's a really good multi-purpose back. The Vikings also played that game without Daniil Hunter. Daniil Hunter did not play last year for Minnesota, and Hunter sacked Kyler Murray three times. Murray played great in this game, and we all know that there are some similarities between Russell Wilson and the Catman, Kyler Murray, who is so fast and so quick and honestly is playing like an MVP right now. He has been a lot of fun to watch these first two games of the year, both against Tennessee and um, against Minnesota. But he's more elusive than Russell Wilson is. And if the Seahawks offensive line has the struggles that it seems like they've been having, I mean, they haven't been running the ball great. They also have seen Russell Wilson get sacked the same amount of times that he normally gets sacked. I think it's still not the worst offensive line in the league, but 
I think that the Vikings pass rush can get to the Seahawks. So I hate to do this, but after what I saw from the Seahawks against the Colts, they're propensity to go for the big play, which might happen and which might work against the Vikings. It did work for the Cardinals at times. I think that the Vikings are going to win this game and that the Seahawks are going to get dropped to one and two. The last thing you got to remember, it is really difficult to play in Seattle, but it's really difficult to play in Minnesota. That's one of the loudest stadiums in the NFL. They got good fans. And I, I think this one's going to be tough. Very, very tough for Seattle. I hope they win, obviously, but I'm picking Minnesota to win this game. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Galan Says Podcast. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud. If you leave a roast, I will read it on the next episode. So long, farewell. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend. We will be, we will be back at it talking about week three of the NFL and a whole lot more on Tuesday.